Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. April 12th, 2020, episode 172, Systems Oriented. Hello everyone, Kevin England. Welcome back to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. Took a little bit of a break for a week or so, just trying to get things in order out in the garage. Uh, spring season is here, and I was trying to get my equipment prepped and cleaned up, and still working, but uh, everything going well here in the England household. Hope everybody is doing well in the COVID world. Don't want to dwell on that this episode, so I won't. I will say that uh, we used Zoom for a couple of things. We ended up signing up for a subscription for Northwest and that worked out really, really well. I hope that uh, the episode we produced with how to handle some virtual things has resonated with some. I saw some responses back that people were pleased to get that information and put it to good use. And I uh, have to thank uh, Russ Sprangle for some of the lead into that. Uh, he was very kind in sharing that detail with us, um, especially around Zoom. Systems oriented. Let's talk about this episode. I'm going to dive right in because it's going to be a long one. Uh, there's a couple things I want to talk about, mostly around spring philosophy and what to do, how to get things set up, different ideas. And I want to talk about being operational and what you can do in operational periods. System-oriented, topic number two, is about do you operate from a system or should you strive to become a more instinctual beekeeper? Topic number three, I'll talk about, don't say it wrong, melting wax. Melting wax. It's a fun and therapeutic thing and the outcomes are just beautiful and there's nothing better than the aroma of melted wax in your kitchen. And then topic number four, going to end the show with a cookie recipe and a resource. So I don't want to dwell on things. Let's go. We'll head right in to the local hive report. Local hive report? Yeah, we got to see live bees. I actually went in my hives a couple times over the over the last period since I've talked to you. Mm, not happy, somewhat happy, thrilled. That's the way to explain it. Let's get the bad news out of the way first. The far hive, three hives left. Um, mm, not in good shape. It has spotty brood, mostly drone. Looks like it has a queen problem. When I just shot that first video that I talked about last time, looking down in on the hive, I noticed the hive just seemed listless. And there were only about two or three, four frames of bees. I'm going to let them hang on and prop them up later, but right now that hive doesn't look very good. When I went through it, and it was on a cool day, so I just quickly meandered through the frames. I noticed the brood patterns didn't look good. In fact, all I saw was the vestiges of capped brood 
emerging. No sign of a queen, and there's only a handful of frames. And I don't think the queen has a hive. How did I say that? The hive has a queen. Now the funny thing is, and this is wishful thinking on my part, I saw a couple of queen cells that were uncapped. It is possible that they made themselves a queen. And my vision in looking at that hive is they probably could use a frame of eggs, new larvae, to make a new queen. I was kind of hoping, and I did this hive first, that maybe I'd find queen cells in another hive and walk them down and stuff them in this hive. But as I looked through my other hives, I didn't find any queen cells yet, which means it's early. Now the funny thing is, as I talk to people around, most people are not finding queen cells yet, lots of drones, but occasionally there are some. So I'm kind of wondering if someone's going to, you know, find a queen cell here or there, or I could just wait and let this hive hang on for that. It's obviously too early. I can't secure a queen anywhere. I can't rear a queen. And even if I did, I'd be better off waiting for a queen cell because they're going to make them in the same time that I could get queen rearing up and running. So just uh, wait on this one. We'll see what happens. I think my best bet is to wait till my other hives, if they do this, make queen cells and just walk one down. Or something will turn up. That's the way beekeeping goes. So we'll call this hive a dink. And I'll wait next actions to figure it out. The second hive is the gateway hive. This went into winter as a deep, deep medium. Mostly because I did a join at the end of the year. I combined a weak hive with a moderate hive. And what's funny is if you look at the videos on it that are out on the YouTube channel, you'll see the paper still hanging out from the combination after I took the uh, insulation off. In that one, I took the top honey box off. There's a little bit of honey left, but not much. They ate all the fondant that I gave them. I would call this hive a moderate. I saw a brood. I saw drones. I didn't see much food storage, although I did see a lot of pollen and some nectar coming in. I only went through the top deep. I didn't bother to go through the top medium that was sitting on the top of the stack and I didn't go down into the bottom box. One thing is it was kind of cool that day, 65 maybe, 60, 65, 3.30 in the afternoon, peak of the heat plus the sun was shining. They were pissy. They were not happy to see me. I was able to go through each frame, pulled it out, and called this and shot a video. Having problems with the video camera keeps shutting off by itself. I'd actually have a better description of the previous hive because I shot a video of it, but the video didn't take. But in this one I was able to go back and look, and what I did was pull out a frame, call the side. Number of bees, one, two, three, one is good, two is, or one is low, two is medium, three is super good and indicated whether the, the hive was foundationless, whether it was drawn comb, so on and so on. So I actually did go through two through nine of that on video and then went back and looked at it after the fact. 
you know, I came away with a great impression of that hive, but I watched the video and determined that the hive was just moderate. Maybe it was my exuberance of going in the hive. And this is why shooting that video actually helped me quite a bit. And I'd, I'd like to try and do that more and more. So the Gateway Hive, I think it's okay. It's a moderate hive coming out of spring. When we get some warm weather and the nectar flow goes crazy, it'll start to grow. And my plan is to possibly do a split with it or figure out what's going to happen with it. I still have in my mind the Bailey Shook, but it's too early to do that because I don't think it's warm enough. Next week it's going to be low in the 30s, high in the 50s at best. I think the following week will be the better week to start doing spring stuff. All I know is this hive is in reasonable shape. On the days they can forage they will. They're not obviously going to starve and they will carry on until we get into the middle of the season which is a little bit later and they're not going to swarm. That's really the key. Next hive on the stack was the 8 frame. This hive was two 8 frame deeps and insulated. This is the hive of everybody's dream coming out of spring. I went in my hives on the on the warm day where we had three days in a row. I went in on the middle day and discovered that this hive was booming. So this is the one where you got to take action. Actually, I went in on the first of three warm days. And then I performed actions all three days, which is why you want to have three days in a row. So the first one, I did an inspection. Looked through that top box, peeked into the bottom box. You could not find a hive that was more wall-to-wall. -wall. Now, I don't know if that's because it's 8-frame and it just didn't have as much space as a 10-frame, but I suspect if they had 10, they would have filled that too. This is one of those hives when you pull out a frame, you can't see the wax because there's so many bees. There's bees on the top bar. There's bees clustered in almost a bearding fashion underneath the inner cover. This hive was just amazing. I know that from looking on the outside, it was going to swarm, period. Now I didn't find any queen cells, but there were so many bees on there and I didn't bother shaking them off because it was a cool day. But my guess is if there was ever gonna be a queen cell, it'd be in that hive. And I also know that, calling what I call, when you see a hive come out of spring like this and you, you just have to do something with it or it's gonna swarm. And I don't want to lose the bees. So, first day did an inspection. Went after that day to look at my options. Second day I set up a plan. I went back in, smoked the bees, and I did a walk away split. I also moved it to 10 frame equipment. So I set up two hives next to it. One was my polystyrene hive, which I want to put back into service, and the other was my cedar hive, which I just had wax dipped and wanted to put back into service. I had four extra frames. I took eight frames out of the top box and I put them in the poly hive and gave them two frames of drawn comb. Put that on a hive stand and put it on a pad and put the roof on it. On the other hive, I put eight frames right in the middle of my cedar 
deep and I put a drawn frame on one side and a drawn frame on the other and put a cover on it and put a roof it's all I could do that day for the time period that I had available to me you know what's funny is as much as I want to do this I'm still working <laughs> it was a, it was a work day that I did this on a Monday because the way the warm weather fell it was a Sunday Monday Tuesday so I snuck out at 3:30 after working all day and did this activity and then planned to do the same thing the next day so the next day I have foundation frames that I'm building I've cleaned up a lot of uh, frames and I'll talk about this in a second so I went out and did manipulation number three which was I took another deep box and I put it on the hive I took the outer frames let me see if I can get this right two and three eight and nine and I moved them up into the top box another deep and then I put foundation frames in their place and filled the top box out with foundation I want to put new fresh comb and eventually I'm going to cycle out the comb that they're using but for right now I just needed to do swarm alleviation and that's what I did I did that on both boxes so if you go back and do the math on this they started with an eight frame hive now what they have is four frames drawn capped full and four frames over top of each other with foundation and a drawn frame next to them on both hives now a walkaway split if you're not familiar with it it's a split and what I didn't bother to do because there were so many bees and it was cool and I didn't want to take the time to go through the hive which is why I chose this option is I split the hive in half one of those two colonies has a queen one of them does not in this time of year with drones throughout I'm confident that in near order they will make supersedure cells now it's been too cold to go back into those hives so I'm not sure where they're at when I get a warm day coming up probably next weekend or thereafter I'll go in and see who made a queen that's my guess I'm playing biology here and just kind of understanding what's going to happen this time of year is perfect time for them to raise a queen and they will do it because one of them is queenless what I have noticed having been out in the yard after doing these things is that one of those hives is calm and serene a little bit of flying not a lot going on the other one is not happy there's tons and tons and tons of activity going on and as soon as you walk up to that hive there they're inspecting you and buzzing you and so on so if I had to venture a guess that hive the aggressive one is the one without a queen and they're not happy about it maybe I'm wrong maybe that's just me imparting something on it but it's kind of strange that one of them is calm as could be and the other one is not just an observation to put in the notes so why did I do a walkaway split because I didn't want this hive to swarm and I have seen that some people have shown that booming hives are swarming so that makes a dink a moderate and 
two hives that are walkaway split in two deeps and we'll see it's the perfect time of year now all the trees are in bloom flowers are in bloom fields are yellow forsythia is you know there's everything out so i probably can do no harm for all these hives they're going to get good nutrition good food and they'll be ready to go the other thing that i've noticed just looking around the yard is that the bees are on the pool for water i see them in the mud i see them foraging quite a bit and I had turning the corner all these frames that I pulled out of hives and this year my job was to call all the old stuff I've spent night after night and better parts of weekends cutting old comb out of frames I am shocked and surprised at how much plastic foundation I had in my hives I just I can't imagine where it all came from probably 25 30 frames of it I'm happy to get rid of it if I look at what was written on some of these frames one of the frames had a note from 1984 1984 <laughs> I see frames with remarks where people wrote in Sharpie 2000 I certainly have my frames from 2014 who knows how old some of this stuff is some of the the comb is so hard that you could knock on it now i made a joke that there might be some frames from when i started now honestly i'm convinced that's true and those frames came from somebody's nuke and who knows how long they were in service so i think i have made a significant change in the operation by getting rid of all this old comb i cut out frames and i could talk about this at some other point and I, I developed a system for cleaning the frames and we have cat food bags Purina brand that we use big 50 pound cat food bags I filled four of them with old comb the question is will the wax moth get to it before I can melt it down later I'm going to talk about wax production but what I want to say is if you are in the same boat as me, you've been doing this for any given amount of time, or you've received comb from other people, buying nukes, getting hives, taking dead outs from other people who don't want to do beekeeping or anymore, do yourself a public service announcement. Do yourself a favor and take an aggressive stance to get rid of it all. I'm convinced now that what a fool I've been by running all this stuff in my hives. And I always say, you should cherish comb. It's a super important asset, but foolhardy I am in all the stuff that I had. And I felt so good at culling all this stuff. Now I have to start from scratch, take foundation, and do it all over again. And I have boxes and boxes of empty frames that I'm going to put foundation in. Now I'm not loading the foundation in until I'm ready to put it on hives. And I also am realizing that from now, mid-April, through probably late May is the only time period that you could probably get bees to build wax in earnest. And after that, if you maintain nukes and do some feeding and so on, maybe. 
So there's only a finite period of time for them to get to draw and comb. And I'm coaching myself right now as I say this to be patient about how much comb I'll have at my disposal and get over it. Knowing that the answer is the better way to do it is to do what I did. Now, two more things on this. On every single frame, I wrote notes in Sharpie. I cleaned every frame scrupulously, and then I wrote a triangle or a dash or whatever symbols to indicate what type of frame, meaning manufacturer style. And then I wrote 3 eighths or half inch for the bottom bar, whether it's a 3 inch diameter, 3 eighths inch diameter, or a half inch. And this allows me to play the frame game. I went through all my frames and I put like for like in the same boxes. Now the stuff that's out in the hives out in the yard is the only difference. And when I do my Bailey Shook, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to the previous episode where I talked about a modified method of getting rid of old comb. Um, I'm going to pull those frames out and do the same thing to them. And then I'll be able to put like for like. I've discovered that I've done pretty good. I can have three or four or five different types and then I have a box full of bastard frames that don't match anything. But I've been able to put together 10 frame combos. And it stands to reason when I got into beekeeping I would buy enough for a hive which would be 20 frames and then another one. And maybe at one point I bought five frames, five boxes setups. And so I've been able to put all that back together and make it match and I've written the symbols. And then the other thing that I did is when I put new foundation in it, I wrote an F for foundation and 20, which indicates to me that that foundation is foundation from 2020. Play the frame game. It's really important to do that. That's my message this year. Okay, droning on far too much. Let's go ahead and head into the first topic of this episode. Local high report check topic number one I call this one operational you would think that after 10 plus years of beekeeping I would have the mysteries of the universe solved when it comes to spring startup wander out to the yard do the hive setup and boom you're off to the races this is not the way it goes for me and it has to do with my type A personality I feel like spring presents another year to try and figure out the magic recipe of the beekeeping season. This is the year. This year. This one right now. Is the golden opportunity to get it right. To have that magical season. The problem is, is I haven't found the recipe. I look at my objectives and I make a plan, but I have never been able to find the recipe. There's a dynamic that makes the notion of recipe a fruitless endeavor. And that is the weather. Every spring seems unique. Unique in a way that eludes you if you overthink it. And I always do. It is almost like you're at the beginning of a race and you have been thinking about how you're going to run that race. You have your strategies all mapped out for the conditions you might encounter, but you really do not know how it's going to play out because it's also variable. The largest variable at play is the weather. And if there's one thing that I've learned in my 10 plus years is that you need to be patient. Today is April 12th and I have been deliberating over the last two weeks watching the weather. 
I will share that there's another dynamic at play for me, which is I feel responsibility to give information to mentees in Northwest about what they should do in the spring. This is a new dynamic for me as we have started a managed mentoring program. And this is the first year that we will have second year people in that program who we're giving guidance to. So not only do I need to get the spring startup right for the first year people who are starting with new packages, new nukes, things like that, and want to feed in the cold and do, I, I'm trying to give guidance just like me to get started to people who are in the second year. Then I turn and look at the internet and I see that people have been in their hives. Now we've had enough warm days and when I originally thought about creating this topic it was a week plus ago and it was early days for that um, some were talking about splits early back then and have done their reversals and were feeding sugar water and they were even talking about and executing queen rearing and now fast forward to today They've done all those things. Some of them made sense, but some like grafting, I, I don't get it, it's too cold. I don't even see that, I see drones in the hives, but I don't see that queens could be out flying given the weather, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Ultimately what I'm trying to say is it makes me wonder if I'm being too conservative and not giving the right advice. But when you're giving advice, you need to be conservative because it's their hives. I've barely gone into my hives and some people are full blown into their spring management already. And I'm asking myself, am I missing something? My experience tells me I'm not cracking up and it's too early and I'm trying to hold resolve but not screw up. When I think about it, especially for those second year beekeepers, the biggest faux pas I could make is if my guidance was to hold off, the worst sin could be that their hive might swarm. And it's possible because I know that the bees started building brood back in January, February time frame. And all through March they've been building brood. And as we sit here in early April, early to mid-April, their hives might be wall-to-wall -wall with bees. There's certainly trees that have bloomed and plants that are out there for them to forage. I made a video going into my hives earlier and basically in summary it said look with your eyes and behave accordingly. At the time that I made my video my hives were not wall to wall. But maybe people do have hives that are wall to wall. And the funny thing is is I see people who have hives that are doing just okay and they're south of us like even as far down as Maryland and Virginia. And then I see people north of us in New York who have super, super, hugely populated hives and they're going to swarm any second now. So this is where you need to use your eyes. And it's also where I come back to weather. I've experimented over the years with getting started early. I've tried to push the envelope in an early spring start. I've made my splits early. I've fed early to build up hives as fast as possible. In the instance where I tried it, my discovery was early is not better.
my splits didn't work. And those colonies that I fed, we got cold snaps and they had to retract. And that's a that's a problem in the context of it's not a terrible problem to have, but it it's a mess. It sets your whole operation back for spring when you were trying to get ahead of the game. Now as I sit here recording this, the morning of April 12th, Sunday morning, we've had some nice days over the last two weeks. And with the COVID thing going on, I've been home. So I've been able to go out and watch what's going on for a change. And I've seen tons of forage and I've peeked in the hive once or twice on warm days and saw what they're bringing in. Yeah. Okay. I know that some hives are, are going great, but I also look at the weather coming up. It was 32 degrees this morning, and there's going to be a low of 30 several times this week. And it's too cold. The bees are going to come back to the cluster. So if you don't have a massive population, chances are that, that things are going on inside the hive that are going to make them retract a little bit. And that's why doing splits early and some of the other things, if you don't have massive populations, might set you back. So I'll come back to this year, 2020. What have I been looking for? My rule of thumb. It is the condition where the low temperature is above 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Consistency, that's my rule of thumb. Consistent. My sensibility tells me that when the colony breaks from the cluster, which happens at 45 degrees, thereabouts, that's the rule of thumb, then generally you start to see the bees flying outside and they can do whatever they need to do to get things rolling inside the colony. And that's the, the time when it's really game on. Now you have those in-between games, right, where you have three or four days where it's warm enough and they are doing that and they're making gains on spring and the population is building and the queen has been laying carpets of brood and there's tons of bees in there. So this is where I say sometimes it's a really complicated thing. It's never the same in any given spring. So last Friday, that was the day. That was the day where it was consistently over 45 degrees and you heard in the local hive report, I was able to go in and do some activities. And I felt compelled to make the walkaway split of the eight frame hive. There's a, a dynamic that I need to discuss here, which is you need to be careful in figuring out those days when it's going to be 45. I live in Hunterdon County in New Jersey, which is the western side central area. When I look at the weather forecasts that I see on AccuWeather.com, Weather.com, and other ones, they coincide with the temperatures in New York City. And New York City is always multiple degrees warmer. It depends on where you live, but be careful on your weather outlet, what you're looking at, because they may be reporting metropolitan, which in my estimation always tends to be multiple degrees higher. I happen to have a weather station, an ambient weather station in the backyard. I know what the real temperature is. I also know what I see in the forecasts and I hear the newscasters say on TV. You have to take into consideration the adjustment of your local weather. Now here's a tip for you, Weather Underground 
usually has a lot of stations that are based throughout the region and not sitting somewhere on the Empire State Building in New York City, in our case. Or at an airport, JFK or whatever, which is typically where those weather stations are for the big outlets. If you go on weather underground and you look around, you can find a local station before we had our personal weather station, before we had our weather station, I talked about this on the show before, I found out that a neighbor literally less than a tenth of a mile had a weather station right on the corner. And I'm able to set my local weather station and weather underground for them. So there's a tip. Go to weather underground and find someone with a local weather station in your neighborhood. I know from experience that it's still pretty early and you have to be patient. If you have one of those super booming hives, you can do no wrong because they can do whatever they need to do when it's cold out because they have the population. But if you're doing early manipulations on hives that are moderate to small, you could potentially be doing harm to them. As far as I know, People watch what's going on in our videos and I get thumbs down because believe it or not, people actually watch the videos and think of giving them the wrong advice. I try to temper what I say to ensure that people know that beekeeping is local and I'm trying to give advice to our club members. That's the point of our Northwest Channel for Managed Mentoring. And if people happen to be following along, this again is another tip for YouTube followers. Consider what people are saying and how it relates to your local area. Because beekeeping is local. Coming back to my personal situation in my yard, as much as I want to go in my hives and as much as I have anxiety about the weather and whether I, the weather, meaning temperatures, and weather, meaning I'm not sure I have this right or not, I'm sticking to my recipe, which is don't go into the hives until it's consistently over 45 degrees, day after day after day after day. That's what I want to do. In the case of my eight frame hive, I had no choice. I actually did have a choice. I could have just left it, but given the opportunity of what I saw, it was going to swarm and I don't want to lose the bees. And I don't want to go into that right now. To be honest, and, it, and this is where I say find yourself a buddy, I was so wrapped around the axle about this, I called Bob Kloss and asked him, Bob, what do you think about this? This was two weeks ago. Don't you feel like it's a little too cold? And I was struggling with asking him uh, about my recipe, 45 degrees, and he backed me up, said it was too cold to go in the hives back then. And when I was telling mentees two weeks ago to have patience, I swear he literally said it was too cold. And I breathed a sigh of relief. Now, I don't know if Bob and I have Stockholm Syndrome because we've been talking together so long that we've influenced each other. But I know Bob's a good beekeeper and I trust his judgment. And I was going to consult with anyone in this area. Bob would be a guy I'd call. And he literally lives in my county and has the same conditions. So another aspect of this is find a beekeeper you can trust and see what they're doing. Get your input and then make your decisions. 
But it comes to the point, if you're trying to follow someone, beekeeping is local, and what you're looking at, you have to translate that to where you are. And the good news for me is I have such a good experience beekeeper and Bob that he's literally in the same county, and I could use him as a one-to-one -one reference. I talk about Bob a lot, but I have a lot of contacts. Um, I, I can't leave Jim out, my neighbor down the, the road, and hearing what he's doing. The funny thing is, Jim's hives always uh, do pretty well, and Jim's a really good, consistent beekeeper, and he did his manipulations early. Uh, you know, this goes to show that there's a lot of flexibility, and he had the time, and he decided to do it early. And he experienced a lot of swarms last year, so he was a little gun-shy, and he wanted to get on his program earlier. Uh, the other thing that Jim did early was oxalic acid treatments, which means he killed his mites early in the spring. And chances are, you know, his hives are, are healthy, doing well. So, you know, look around. There's a lot of different people you can access. Okay, moving on. Colony size coming out of winter. I want to turn the corner and talk about when the weather is right, what should you do? when the weather has turned good and you're trying to figure out i generally like to see what's going on in the hive duh to be specific i'm talking about the cluster what it looks like where it's located and the type of hive that you have and other things that you plan to do for the season but honestly it's really about the bees i want to see how big the cluster is i want to know where it's located these are the biggest influence on what i want to do next and for simplification, simplification, I'm going to talk about three different conditions and what I would do for each one of them. And, you know, typical convention would be go large to small, small to large, but I'm going to go the opposite way and say, I'm going to start with medium because that's what you're going to be encountering most commonly. Mid-size cluster. My guess is that most colonies come out of winter with a mid-sized cluster. Mid-sized cluster often has pushed its way into the top of the box. It's sitting underneath the inner cover. And it has two, three, four frames of honey left. And it occupies three, four, five, six frames of bees. Your number of frames of food or bees may vary with my thing, but I'm just winging it. I would consider the norm coming out of winter would be two deep boxes over the bottom board and under the roof. But I know that there's choices of others who use all mediums and so on. The first choice you have with this colony that is sitting underneath the inner cover occupying the top box is a spring reversal. On a warm day in the height of the season when it's above 60, 65 degrees you break the hive apart. You move the top box over the bottom board and you take the bottom box and you put it on top of it. You've reversed the hive bodies and it results in the cluster being placed at the bottom of the hive. This is a time, hopefully, when it's above 45 degrees every day. Now one of the key things about that is you waited until it was 45 degrees and chances are the colony had a chance to grow to sufficient size to keep itself warm. I think that's an important dynamic because you've just moved the colony to the bottom of the hive 
and they're literally sitting right next to the front entrance where the cold air comes in. Ironically, this spring, we've had all these blustery weather days, and it's been super windy. As I go outside and look, the, the trees have been blowing, and um, there's been four, five, six days where there's been a consistent heavy wind. If you've taken that colony early and put it on the bottom board, and it was a smaller colony, wind's blowing in the entrance and it's chilling them. Yeah. Just one of those things about this spring. That's the way the world rolls. I believe, and this is just me talking out loud, that the thermodynamics of a hive in winter benefit from when they push up underneath the inner cover because they're somewhat able to take advantage of any residual heat that collects on the top of the hive because heat rises. And if you do this reversal early and you get to some of those cold nights where the cluster's in the bottom of the box, temperature dips below 30 degrees, like last night, <laughs> and you're getting cold air coming in the front entrance, it's chilling some of the bees. They may cluster even tighter and lose some of their brood that they can't cover. This is my rationale about struggling in the spring and why I always deliberate this and watch the weather. You become a meteorologist. You, you are looking at the forecast every single day trying to figure out what's happening. And you wake up in the morning where you've made that change and you look the next day and you have regret because you made the change and darn it if the weather didn't turn cold. Again, I might be overthinking this. And when you have a massive population, you could breathe a little easier because they could make more heat in the spring. When you start to have those string of warm days and it's above 45 every morning, the temps are in the 60s, you could do a reasonable inspection to check for two conditions that will tell you whether you're in harm of hive swarming. The first one is, your hive's not going to swarm unless it has drones. This is biology. The typical order of things is they make drones in the spring and while the spring is building to its crescendo, the drones are coming out and then they start to build queen cells. So in the first inspection earlier in the year, not now, now it's a little bit late and you should see drones, you're going to look to see whether you have drones in the hive. And this is where you could just pull out a couple frames on that warmish day and look to see if there's any drones there. By New Jersey standards, where swarming starts April 15th, it, it would be a surprise to me if you don't pull out frames today and you don't see a plethora of drones. The second thing you're looking for is queen cells. And I can say, as I sit here today, that as I've talked to different beekeepers, about 75% of them reported they haven't seen any queen cells yet, but a handful of them have seen them. So some hives get started earlier in building queen cells. I don't know if that's a genetic thing or if they were just predispositioned because they were a good strong colony and they got the swarm triggers of congestion and all the things that happen. But this is another advice thing for mentees is when it's a little bit warmer and you don't have a lot of risk of chilling the brood, pop the cover off, smoke them a little bit, pop a couple frames out and look to see whether you have drones and whether you have queen cells. And this is all a bit of a balancing act. 
I suspect when people look at our videos, which are aimed at training new people and new experience, folks say, eh, Pisha, he's such a dope. He could be going in there farther than he recommended. The truth of the matter is there's just not enough energy in making a video to explain all of that. And if you're new and listening to this podcast, you get the benefit of the investment of me spelling this all out as to the logic behind it. And whether you believe in what I'm telling you or whether you decide to go a different way, at least you've heard some of the rationale of the things that I tell people. And you could take that as part of the equation in figuring out what your spring recipe is. Now, I was talking about the mid-sized cluster. Do you have to do a reversal? Actually, you could just leave them in the way they are. I'm far past this blasphemy of saying that bees build down. When you read the books, you hear a lot of people telling you that bees want to build up. I don't disagree with that theory. But I know that when they have no choice, bees will build down. They'll build sideways. They'll build however they need to build in order to get the job done. So do you need to do a spring reversal? No, not really. In fact, there's some beekeepers who think spring reversal is a bad idea. Because when you do, you're resetting the entire inside of the colony to the way that they had it. They were working on a plan where the open space was blown and all of a sudden you just upended everything. They had designs for the honey chamber and how they were storing pollen and now it's all switched. And some beekeepers report when they have the opportunity to watch the spring reversal sets the hive back for a little bit and they pause trying to figure out what the heck happened and you get a little bit of a break now you could use that somewhat to your advantage some say as a swarming thing because that slows them down a little when they were ramping towards swarm and it gives them a little bit of a break you know you could go crazy driving your, yourself nuts thinking about these things but could you imagine if someone came into your two-floor home and put the top floor on the ground and elevated the top floor? Would that be disruptive? That's the way you want to think about that. Yeah, of course it would. Bees will have to address that new reality, and the world just turned upside down. Moderate hive, let's put that away. Let's go to booming hive. Just like what I spoke about in the local hive report, you got to take some sort of action. When you have so many bees that when you lift a frame up, the entire frame is covered with so many bees that you can't see the wax, and the top bars are covered, and the walls are covered, and when you pop the inner cover, they're clustered up underneath the inner cover, almost like bearding on the inside. You gotta do something with this hive. The queen pheromone is not gonna make contact with all the bees, and they will eventually get to a swarming state. There's a lot of different techniques you could do to relieve congestion. If you go out on the YouTube channel and look at the spring management video I posted, I did a presentation recently to help our mentees in the second year have a concept of some of the options. You could pyramid up. You obviously should add new boxes for congestion so that the bees have room to go other places and spread out so they're not literally shoulder to shoulder. You can add honey supers. You can perform a split. You can perform a daymarie. The key is you need to do something. The obvious answer is relieve congestion by adding more equipment. 
hopefully you've been thinking about that coming into your second year and you have new equipment there. The good thing to say is even if they've swarmed, you have so many bees that you have the probability of having a good season anyway and you've contributed to the world. Now one thing here is about pinching queen cells and um, had a conversation with Bob Kloss actually on the phone yesterday about this. There's different schools of thought. Leave the queen cells in there and don't pinch them. And pinch the queen cells. And Bob, Bob told me this and I really had never thought this through or considered it. If you open it and there are tons and tons of queen cells, the recommendation is pinch a bunch of them, leave a handful. The point would be that in a massive colony with so many queen cells, they'll swarm and they'll swarm and they'll swarm and they'll swarm and they'll have all the daughters they need to do that. Sometimes this is thought to believe, thought to be attributed to those swarm after swarm until a hive just swarms itself to death. There's another dynamic that I know from reading, and I, I read this recently actually, I don't remember the source, so sorry for that. But there are times, and I think I have this going on in my one hive that I mentioned, where the queens added gas, went through this. The, the unfortunate thing is winter is done. Queen doesn't have anything in her. And you now have a, a hive in trouble. And the, the good news is they had some young larva to convert and if you go through in the spring to do swarm prevention with a failing queen and you pinch all of them your queen is no good and you've pinched all your things and your hive is going to die it's not always a swarming thing so if you're going to pinch queen cells let's just go to that point make sure you understand what's going on is that hive in a swarm state they have queen cells, yes, but do they have a massive population? Do they have a massive food? Do they have drones? Do they have everything that you would say, wow, they're going to swarm? If they don't, think twice about it. Scenario number three is the dink or the small hive, whatever terminology you use. This is a colony made it through by the skin of its teeth. It's super small. It could even be a teacup colony, one that's the size of the palm of your hand. I think it was 300 bees total is all they need in order to keep a colony going at its smallest to support the queen. But likely you end up with one or two frames of bees. You know looking at that, that this colony just barely made it through and they're not going to swarm. There are no jeopardy of that. When it comes to common wisdom, it's all over the map here. Many times I see beekeepers simply have paralysis with this because they've seen so many different suggestions, they don't know which way to go. The honest answer is, when they leave them alone, that's not a terrible choice. Nature intended this hive to be the way it's going to be, and nature is just about to feed this colony everything it can. And I've seen colonies where you just leave them be, grow to a full-size colony and be productive. Who knows why they were so small? Maybe they had a Varroa problem. All the bees died toward the end. 
and maybe they don't have a varroa problem anymore and they'll come out healthy. There's all kinds of things that happen in this way. So one of the first options is just leave the colony be. With a good nectar flow and a good spring, it might rebound and come through. And I've done this and I've seen them become good producers. I've also seen hives just wallow, wallow, never reach any potential. They go through the whole season and they stand no chance. And I've even fed these hives and they just don't go because the queen is a dud. And beekeepers love their colonies. So a lot of times what people try to do is hands-on fix these things. If you find yourself in that camp, feed them. See if they rebound. And if they don't, then do something. Now, the commercial approach would be, they go through all their hives, and you could take good guidance from this, and they take all their dinks and they combine them with a strong hive to make it even stronger. It is extremely common wisdom, and it's smart, not to combine a dink with a dink. Two bads do not make one good because you have a poor queen and a poor queen. You're going to have to pinch one of them and you put them together. And, you know, maybe you had the chance where they needed enough resources to go grow to critical mass, but chances are the queen's just not going to magically be better. Your better choice is one of two things. One, take the dink and combine it with a good colony. You're going to make that good colony super amazing good colony, and then you can make a split, and you end up with a good colony from the base and a good colony on the split, and you win-win. The other thing that you could do with the dink is requeen it and give it some resources. So if you have great colonies, you can do some exchange, equalize your hives in the spring, and this can, with the new queen, make that colony productive. Now I recognize that I did exactly what I said <laughs> you're going to find. I'm going to give you 20 different options <laughs> and not a now I've confused everybody. Hmm. Honestly, um, I don't know that people find, you know, they have the skills sometimes, especially in a second year beekeeper of requeening a hive and doing all of that. Uh, I would feed the colony and see if it comes back. Maybe some circumstance held it back. And then if it didn't go, I would combine it with another. Let me say that should be your central path. And then you could take that as an input and decide what you're going to do. But that would be the uh, key recommendation. All those other options aside, that's the one. Feed the colony and see if it grows. This is a, an opportunity, too, where you can feed a spring colony. And it would be the right way to do it. I don't actually recommend feeding colonies, moderate to large colonies in the spring. It usually leads to trouble. Okay. We've been through dink, moderate, and large hives. Let's talk about some choices to do management, spring management, checkerboard, pyramid up, brood nest, expansion, things like that. Ultimately, if you made the right choices, you had good uh, overwintering, you're going to end up with a thriving colony. Your next action is to plan how to prevent them from swarming. 
the funny thing is, is early April here, central New Jersey, where I am, we still have cold weather, but swarming is coming. Now, I haven't seen a mass of, oh, my hives are swarming. And typically what you find is beekeepers posting, I caught one of my swarms today. Have I seen some? Yes. If you had one of those super booming colonies and you got to one of these warm days and you didn't do anything, your hive's going to swarm and hopefully you caught it. So yeah, I've seen a handful, but I've not seen a run yet. April 15th, right around the corner. Now, as I sit here on the morning of April 12th and look at the weather, warm days are not ahead. It's lows of 30s next week. So we're getting one of those retraction, and this is what April's all about. Usually what you see in April in our territory is if we have a cold middle April, the end of April turns warmer, early May, and then all of a sudden it's game on from a spring explosion. Because the bees have been confined, they're in their building, they've been able to get some nectar, and they can grow and grow and grow, but they don't have any relief, and then they just, like, swarm bomb everything. In this case, you, the beekeeper, have choices to make when you get these occasionally warm days and a large colony to do work. First thing we'll talk about is checkerboarding. I've listened to presentations and podcasts on other outlets using the term checkerboarding and I'm dismayed at the fact that people get it wrong. I wish people would be very careful on how they use the term. Checkerboarding can be attributed to Walter Wright and if you look at the end of this uh, show notes you'll find a link to Walter stuff and Walter always expressed dismay at people using this term incorrectly checkerboarding as a technique by definition as I understand it is breaking up the honey dome creating channels through the honey store area so that the bees can pass through and have more area to load honey nectar Part of the problem that Walter identified was that over top of the brood chamber they would become honey bound and that would cause problems. And he felt that if you opened that area up and created less congestion in the honey storage area by checkerboarding, which means moving up every other frame loosely, I'm just going to describe it that way, you can go read what Walter said, um, that creates pathways for the bees to go up. If you're taking brood and splitting it apart and adding new frames and adjusting it, expanding the brood nest, that's not checkerboarding. It has nothing to do with honey. I'm going to put my soapbox away, but I wanted to try and clear that up so that when people are talking about checkerboarding, hopefully others hear this and you could keep saying this, please ask people to stay on task with this. Checkerboarding is about relieving Honey dome area, not brood nest. Now let's talk about opening the brood nest. There's a couple different ways to do this. I'm going to share some thoughts on this idea. The first one is um, the side of the brood nest. The queen lays in the middle, hopefully. Now sometimes you'll find the, the brood nest over to the left or to the right, not dead center, but either way they're going to expand 
horizontally first in the bottom box. Let's let's play pretend we'll take a hive. We had a moderate size hive. We did the spring reversal. They're centered in the bottom of the box and they're going to grow. They're going to grow first out in the bottom box and then up into the top box. That's typical. If they grow out to the point where they've filled the bottom box, they have frame of brood, 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 four frames of brood in the middle. Then they have pollen and pollen, nectar and nectar, honey and honey capped on the outside. And now they're going to start to, the queen's going to go up and start laying in the top box and she's doing frame of brood, frame of brood, frame of brood, and you have all this congestion. If you're early in the spring and it's warm enough, one of the things you can do in the bottom box is go into the outside of the brood chamber, take those frames and pull them up into the center of the bottom of the top box and open the side of the bottom. Preferably, you're going to put drawn comb in there. Still a little cool on some of the days. And what you're doing here is you're centering the heat through the center column of the hive. You're allowing the queen in the bottom to build out. And it relieves congestion on the side. Bees have room to store nectar and pollen and make more honey and have reserves. So, in that perspective, one of the things you could do is referred to as pyramiding up. If you had the bees built all the way out in the bottom box, you could take some of the outer brood frames and their pollen frames next to them, pollen, nectar, honey, move them up into the center in the top. And what you end up with is four frames on the bottom and two or three frames in the top box. And if you look at it, it creates a pyramid shape. That's why it's called pyramiding up. And then you take drawn comb and you put it in the place of the ones that you pulled out. And the point of this is that you've expanded the ability for the bees to build out on the bottom. You've opened the sides of the brood nest. And you've enticed the queen to come up and build up in the top box. And the top box will benefit from the heat rising from the bottom. That's not checkerboarding. Now one of the things I would not suggest you do is pull up every other frame. Some beekeepers like to do this, and I'm going to talk about this in a second when you can do that, but not early in the spring. If you pull up every other frame, you're separating brood from brood, and you're making a hole. And a lot of people want to do this where they take a frame of foundation, they get this confused, and they put it in an early spring. You're separating the heat from them. Bees need frames of drawn comb to go in the cell in order to do warmth. That's what they do. They go inside cells and they heat things up. Foundation doesn't work. The, the other side of this is to go later when it's warm. And I, I'm going to do a Kevin moment here. I've been trying to promote this concept occasional. In the wintertime, you can't go in. There's no occasion to go into the bees. In the springtime, it's somewhat occasional, meaning you'll get an occasional warm day when you can go in. 
it transforms into mostly occasional which means most of the days you can go in but occasionally there's some cold days where you shouldn't and then there's full ready to go summertime any occasion you want you can go in when it's somewhat occasional meaning it's mostly cold but every once in a while you can go in this is not a time to perform the technique where you're pulling up every other frame in the brood chamber in order to free up space when it's mostly occasional where it's 70 degrees every day some days you get a cloudy cool day 50 degrees but there's so many bees in if you wanted to perform this next technique that I'll talk about you could do it then but don't do it early pyramid up is different you're still and this is key to pyramid up keeping the brood nest compact in the center of the bottom box and the box above it it's a lot like having a nuke in the middle of your two deep hive the next one that I'll talk about and this is different and it's not checkerboarding is if you had a large cluster in the bottom and you're on mostly warm days mostly occasional you could pull every other frame up and then you can take foundation and put it in between the brood frames foundation now it's warm every day you might get that 50 degree cloudy day but the next day it's going to be warm again here's what you get with this this is where you get to brood brood up you're relieving um, congestion in the brood area and when you put a frame of foundation in between two brood frames and it's hot and it's warm they don't like that open space and they have bees and population creating wax the right age and the temperature to do it they'll build that frame out very quickly and then the queen likes to lay in fresh wax so you could do this technique but wait till later don't do this now early in the spring so pyramid up relieve the side congestion Bob Kloss sent me something the other day which was interesting someone was taking I'm gonna have to find a link and put it in the show notes someone was taking plastic foundation and cutting them in a certain way which is leaving them uh, open in open areas and letting the bees build wax the technique is literally opening the side of the brood nest, I think is the name of it. I'm going to pause for a second and go find this. Give me a second. Okay, found it. This is from Davy Bees, opening the side of the brood nest. It was uh, posted out on Source. Bob found it and sent it over to me. Davy Bees had this white paper, I'll call it, that showed how to open the side of the brood nest by taking plastic foundation and cutting it in a specific way it cut triangles out of the bottom right and bottom left side of a frame and three weeks before swarm season timing you put these in and he talks about the same thing I'm discussing if the hive is not as strong 50% brood 90% of the frames of bees in the main box then open up one side of the brood nest with a frame of partial foundation if the hive is very weak 30% brood less than 50% frames of bees or less check if there's a honeydomb around the brood nest 
and he goes on with further instructions. So this was interesting, same uh, concept on this. I don't like plastic foundation, but that's another aside. <laughs> I'll have a link to this. You should go check it out if you're interested in the technique. And he goes through different indicators of when this technique makes sense. But in essence, it's the same concept, open the side of the brood nest. And that's literally what this technique he came up with is, is uh, referred to. Opening the sides of the brood nest, or OSBN, is the uh, approach. It's davybees.wiki.com. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Before I close the topic, I want to address one that some may or may not have dabbled in, but I seem to see that there's a lot of questions about this, and it has to do with insulation. Did you insulate your hives over winter? And if so, when should you remove it? It's a fair question, and I've seen several schools of thoughts on this. Personally, I left mine on until I got to do the first full inspection, and I just recently took it off. Should I have? No. But it was a management operation when I had time to do it, and I took it off. And I think my clusters are big enough that they'll get through fine without the insulation. Now, ironically, they probably could have benefited by the insulation because it's about to turn cold again, but too late, made my choices. I like to leave mine on until that first full inspection which is what I did last Friday. If I intend to do manipulations where I'm going to do reversals or change, I need to have the insulation off and I don't want to go through the hassle of putting it back on. Now let's talk about insulation, when you should remove it and why. There's a perceived advantage to letting the warmth of the sun get in and warm up the hive in spring. Some believe in this. I don't have an opinion, well I do, but I don't have opinion against that idea is what I should say. Uh, some feel that hive warms up in the day, bees get active, cools off in the night. That has something to do with the biological behavior of the bees understanding the time of the season in cooperation with light and nectar and other things. And the harmony of the world should say that the insulation interferes with that because insulation doesn't allow the hive to get heated. I will turn and say, counterpoint to that, I have insulated hives through polystyrene hives and they're the most productive hives, especially in the spring. And I think a lot of the benefit of keeping the insulation on, if that's the path you go, is the fact that the inside temperature with these frequent swings that we see in the April time frame, high, low, warm days, several in a row, then cold, it tends to be more consistent, especially last night it was 32, it's supposed to be a high of maybe 70 today. That's a pretty big swing. Now, I don't know what that does to the bees inside, I'm not an entomologist, but if you had insulation, I think the variation inside the hive might be a little less and I do think that 
bees do benefit from insulation earlier in the spring if they have even a little bit warmer temperature they can get started earlier hmm I don't know I think of it this way if you went through the point of insulating your hives for winter why would you not leave it on as long as you could until it interferes and then you have to get it off I think you could drive yourself crazy overthinking this stuff and it has to be the practical side of it is if it's in the way remove it and if it's too much hassle to put it back don't put it back I have a question for everybody where do you put this stuff I hate to have to store this in my garage I just can't stand it almost to the point where I don't want to insulate my hives I insulated because I wanted to know whether or not this was a good idea and see whether my colonies did better with it. If I had my druthers, I'd sell all my equipment and just go to polystyrene hives and be done with it. I don't know. That's one of the things I hate about this is storing the insulation. I'm using the one inch, two inch foam stuff. I know some people are using bee cozies. I don't know. I like the foam better, but I hate to have to store the stuff. So I've been yammering on. This could have been a, a full episode in its own right. The world according to Kevin with spring management. There is one thing I didn't talk about that has to be said. The indicator plant in the world, as far as I know, this is universal, is forsythia. When you see the forsythia on, you can almost count on the fact that they're building drones. I don't know why the two coincide. It has to do with the combination of light, weather, temperature, so on. The forsythia just matches up. It's the indicator plant here in New Jersey, and I think it's in the eastern seaboard. I, I don't know about the rest of the U.S. The funny thing about me personally, I live in the Amwell Valley. That's the name of the region I'm in. And I live in the valley, and I live in a hole on the floor. This is a joke we have at work all the time. Oh, I know, you live in a hole in the floor of the valley. <laughs> and I tend to think that my videos show that we're a little behind. I also have a microclimate right where I am, literally. My property is different from my neighbor down the road who did his stuff earlier. You can walk down our street and feel warm 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 and then you get to my end of the road and the temperature gets noticeably cooler so what I would say to you is if you're a new beekeeper public service announcement get Zen with where you're at locally do you live on a hillside do you live in an open field area do you live in a development do you have your bees on a roof are you in a hole in a floor in the valley? <laughs> I don't know where you are. So while you listen to all this guidance and advice, beekeeping is local, keep that in mind. I hope you found this topic interesting. I did drain the swamp on it. I just had to get this all out of my head, and now I have, and I feel better for it. I think this is probably one of the most extensive spring thinking things I've ever recorded. I will, as noted, have some links in support in the show notes. Swarm prevention alternatives, checkerboarding results and conclusions. The paperwork from 
uh, Walter Wright, which I think is a pivotal paper. You should know that. There's a article on pyramiding, getting bees to move up, described in Honey Bee Suite that I found. I didn't read it, but I know it's out there. So I had it in my notes from a long time back. So I'll provide a link to that. And I'll provide a link to Opening the Sides of the Brood Nest by Davy Bees. Which, by the way, you should go look at the rest of that site. I did spend some time after Bob sent it over. And there's a lot of cool stuff in there. Guy's pretty sharp. And I love the format that he used to present the information. Very well done. If you're interested in more spring dynamics and things like that, keep an eye on our Northwest YouTube channel and our website. We're literally presenting the information for our mentees. So you can follow the stuff that we're sharing with them. The YouTube channel is NWNJBA at YouTube, so it's youtube.com slash NWNJBA. We'd be posting videos there, look at the managed mentoring list, and also anything that's recent. Topic number two, this one is namesake of the episode, systems oriented. I like to cook, bake, barbecue. Being the type A person I am, I go two ways. I sometimes cook because I need to eat to sustain life and feed my family. And I sometimes cook to attain something of a greater pleasure in execution through food. Sharon makes Maxwell House coffee half and half blend in the morning. This half caffeine coffee is so pedestrian but it serves the purpose of the first cup of the day. She makes a pot, but only one cup for me personally. And in a typical way, if I'm not going to work, my second cup is often something that I've roasted. I roast the coffee with my coffee roaster through experimentation. I grind it just so, I weigh it, and I make it with water that's the proper temperature in a process that would be the envy of the staff of Bon Appetit magazine. It's so funny how you can live two lives. You could be super structured and you could prod along. And the good news is, either way, you get to eat and drink. When I talk about beekeeping, I often strive to be the gourmet coffee guy. But my lifestyle of having to work for a living forces me, most times, to be the Maxwell House beekeeper. And I don't get the results I know I could, or that I, better stated, perceive I could. And therein lies the rub. I try to be systems-oriented, but many times I end up being ad hoc. And only through experience have I found a way to be a better beekeeper. In an unplanned, messy kind of way, what makes you good or bad is making good decisions in the moment. I want to continue this topic by asking you a pointed question. What's your goal in beekeeping? Do you have a goal? And chances are you do, but maybe you never thought of that question. So let me give you a moment to come up with a goal. Now let me take that question and use it to drive a point. Let's say your goal is to make honey. That's a good one to use for an example. 
Now, I'm not going to demand you say that you want to make X amount of honey. Just simply your goal is to make honey, which presumably translates into putting honey in a jar and having honey in jars in your cupboard, or maybe you want to go as far as selling it. Now that you're starting a season or starting out in beekeeping and you have a goal, make honey, it's kind of like how I lamented in the beginning of this episode. How do you do that? Isn't that a weird question? You probably have a formula, a recipe. We first get your equipment ready. You get a good location. You need good bees. You have to set up at the right time. You have to make sure you do not allow them to swarm. Yeah, varroa mites and sugar and feed them. You know what you need? You need a, a, a plan. Hmm. There's a lot to this. It's like a big machine. You know, it all seems interrelated. I got it. I could apply a systems-oriented approach. It's one big system. It's interrelated. It's all connected. Have you come to that conclusion yet? Have you decided that you can tame the beast? If only you could map it all out, come up with a plan, a recipe, a formula. You can lick this thing. This is where I stop the goofy charade and call out the point, which is sometimes the best way to go about it is to not have a point. Coming from me, that is a super weird way to hear it because I am the definition of a recipe goal-oriented plan and task approach. I talk a good game, but there is something that also has to be recognized, Maxwell House Beekeeper. Sometimes the best beekeepers I know with go with the flow. Ding, 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 ding. That's a magical idea. And when you come to that realization, that moment, that point in time, you start to transcend a system approach, and that's what this is talking about. I'll give this a label for discussion purposes. I'll call it instinctual beekeeping. Instinctual is alluding to the premise that you operate on instinct. I would like to think that this is the way I'm heading and the way I roll these days. I'm operating to a plan, a formula, a recipe, but I'm also allowing instinctual. It comes with experience and observation and scars and failures and triumphs. It's what makes great figures great in so many examples in our life. That's someone who makes those key decisions in their pursuits over and over again, and it makes them successful in life. And most times it's no accident. It takes an underlying investment and a craft and a patience and an education from the school of hard knocks to get there. I pride myself at work for operating really good teams. I've made it my life's pursuit to understand good systems. And then I observe the people who get it and I choose them to work with. Turning to beekeeping, I could look at beekeepers and listen to how they approach things, and I could tell pretty quickly whether they're going to make it or not, whether they're going to be great, mediocre, or whether, quite frankly, they should probably pack it in and go do something else. 
Then there's the side of a contingent of people that you can't read. They're not systems oriented, never have been, never have a plan. I wouldn't explain them as instinctual either. More like experimental or they action on whimsy. Whatever has them at that moment, this is what they're doing. In some respects, I think that's the coolest kind of person to observe and study. And let me say that some of the best beekeepers fall into this realm. When you have, for example, a super bright person who is simply in a different place than most and they decide to go their own way, well, that's a formula for discovery and breakthroughs. And they're fun to watch. And that's the essence of this whole corporate feel of diversity and uh, embracing somebody who's different. And I can't think of a more wide open place of different people than beekeeping. Yeah, it's kind of a fun thing to watch. And one of the better parts of being a part of an association or watching what goes online in Facebook and forums and things. Just saying. I guess what I'm trying to say here is there are all kinds. If you find that you are not inclined to follow the pack or you lean toward the type A super controlling management approach, it's going to be okay. We are all God's creatures and the Great One loves us equally. So I'm told. I will implore you to do one thing. There is one universal truth that no matter what type you are, you would be well served to know your bee biology. Systems oriented or ad hoc, bee biology is the key. Above all, knowing how things are and why they are and the way they are will serve all types of beekeepers in understanding what goes on and in some ways should stop you from doing things if you're going down the wrong path that harm the bees. And so many times I look at what people do and I say to myself, if they only knew bee biology, they would know that that's the wrong way to go, or this doesn't make any sense, or they're making the right choice. And I find myself asking more and more these days, what's going on from a biology standpoint? Studying for my master beekeeper has made me more zen with this. And above all, I take the knowledge that I got and use it as a key input to what I'm doing. And even as a Maxwell House beekeeper in those days that I am, I think I make better decisions. It gives me a weapon to evaluate what others do also, and it puts certain approaches that I see out on the world, out on the internet, in the interwebs, to the test. I'm able to evaluate something with great Specificity is, I guess, the word that comes to, to the surface. There is no smoke and mirrors to activities when you know your biology. And if something goes wrong in a management practice, you can almost always come back to bee biology to ferret out the root cause of where it went awry. So in the end, I'll leave you with this. Consider less system and more ad hoc. Now, if you're brand new to this, follow the recipe. That's what I tell my mentees. Follow what we tell you because we're giving you a good plan. 
And then once you understand bee biology and you have those observations and that tactical experience, then go your own path and follow your instinct. Become an instinctual beekeeper. Now, it's taken me 10 years to get there. Some people get there a lot quicker than I do. <laughs> That's the way the world is, you know. Um, yeah. Recipes are good, but you have to experience your trust of skills and observation. And you learn to be an approach that is more organic. I find some beekeepers have been using the same formula for years. They start out with that recipe and they never change. And some do okay because they started with a good recipe and some fall behind because beekeeping evolves. They're stuck and they cannot evolve. Those with some experience who follow their biology and observations excel and back to the way you cook your meal, it comes out exactly as you pictured it. Topic number three, I'm going to call this one Welting Max. If you've ever taken the time to collect wax that you've used, whether it's burr comb, whether it's capping wax, whether you're melting frames, at some point you're going to come with a collection of the stuff. Way earlier in my beekeeping time frame, I always took styrofoam coolers and made like a handy little wax melting operation and then at some point I built a cabinet you might have heard me talk about this I have it sitting on an old wheelchair so I can wheel it around into the Sun when I need to over the last couple years in both capping wax scraping off burr comb and in melting frames down that I don't want to have in service anymore I've been able to collect uh, cakes of wax. Let's just use that term. Now in my wax melter I have a tray with a screen and the dirty stuff sits on the tray and the tray is angled and through heat and gravity it pours through all the dirty stuff, goes through the screen, drips down into the tray. It doesn't create the cleanest wax. Sometimes the debris and bees and whatever fall through. That screen is just there to keep the heavy-duty stuff out. And you also get pollen and whatever else is in there. Now, I always try to, I don't want to say it, melt wax. <laughs> You're going to say this, Welt Max. Melt wax of like type. So I collect capping, 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 and then I melt all capping. And I collect burr and burr and burr and burr. And if you're ever out, just scrape that stuff off and put it in a little bag and then melt all that at one time. And then when you're melting frames, melt it separately. The reason being the quality of the wax. Capping wax is new, fresh, clean, light yellow in color. And you don't want to mix that with the darker wax that comes out of melting frames or the in-between stuff. Most of the time you can take the stuff that is in Burcombe and mix that with the capping wax. It tends to be just a tinge darker in my experience. So Sharon and I, we took all these blocks of wax that we had laying around that we decided we just needed to clean up and do something with. And we spent some time over a couple days 
putting up the double boiler and melting those, just getting them into the point where they were liquid state, and then pouring them through a filter. And we decided, because we had them, to pour them into silicone molds. So a couple things if you're going to do this operation. One, it's very therapeutic. It's a lot of fun. And it smells great when you're well. Oh, I did it. When you're welting. When you're melting the wax, you would uh, have this beautiful aroma throughout the entire kitchen. It's just incredible. Now some people do this outside. They do not want to uh, melt their wax in the house. I'm a good fan of that idea. If you're going to do that inside, be very careful with it because it gets all over the place. You pour it on your counter and then you have to scrape it off. You get it on your stove, whatever the case may be. The other thing about it is whatever implements you're using, spoons, forks, knives, double boilers, pots, pans, filters, it all needs to be dedicated to the effort. Do not break out your kitchen stuff. You will curse yourself because you can't get the wax off as much as you want to try. So over the years, we've replaced our pots and pans, and I've been smart enough to know, having heard other people give this advice, don't throw that stuff out. Put it downstairs. I have a cheese grater and a couple other things down there. To when Sometimes when you're making things, you grate the wax. So build your collection over time. Even if you're not going to do this in the near term, keep it in mind and do this. So that brings to mind one of the things is the pour. What we did was we melted the wax in a double boiler. This is just a pot over a pot of boiling water or simmering water that creates enough heat to, to melt it. And then you have to pour it through a filter. You could use cheesecloth, you could use other things. Cheesecloth tends to give you dirty wax because the fibers come off. The best thing, bar none, is a, a nylon stocking. And Sharon took one for the team, went upstairs and got some that she had in reserve. I don't know why she had them, because she never wears them. But uh, one of the things that I noticed, just observationally, and it, and it was an aha moment, when I did the first pour, I poured it through the stocking. Sharon wasn't there, so I just poured it through the stocking straight up. When Sharon came to help me, her desire to be helpful, she tried to get a better system. We had a cone filter, you know, the plastic one that you would like put oil in a motor engine in. We had one of those. I have one in my kit. And she took the nylon and strapped it over the cone and used rubber bands to hold it. Well, when she did that, she stretched it out a little bit, and that makes the holes bigger. And what we found is on those pores, when we poured the wax, some of the particulate matter, we think it's probably pollen ended up coming through. If you think about the way that works, you're pouring this into a mold and all the debris is settling on the bottom, but the mold is typically upside down. So when you pop it out and turn it over, the debris is sitting on top and you see it. So mine came out clean and the ones that she did came out with some pollen in the pour. And then we adjusted it, fixed it, and we could have gone back and melted those again, but honestly what we were trying to do is just clean this wax up of, I'll use the word detritus, I think I've said it before. So what did we end up with? We ended up with little blocks of 
Uh, we they're like little fingers. We did a whole bunch of them. Some are light in color because they're capping wax. Some of them are dark in color because they're, you know, from old foundation. But to me, that wax is valuable. Now, would I make candles and burn that stuff? I don't know. Maybe there's debris in there that and pesticides and so on that is going to end up in the wax. Why would it not be in the stuff you melted from melting down combs? But if I were going to rub down a drawer or do different things where I use wax in the garage that's perfectly suitable so there's no reason to get rid of it the stuff that was capping wax and the stuff that was burcombe is absolutely beautiful it is show quality really nice and the flowers that we made we made different flowers and and designs they came out really beautiful I use the term as metro as it sounds um, they're really you know, one of the things I know from doing in this past is when you pour the wax, when it cools, a lot of times you get that little dimple in the bottom. These didn't do that, and I'm not sure why. I don't know if it had to do with the temperature was just right or what, but they really came out nice. So are there any other words of wisdom other than... Yeah, let me talk about one thing that we did. Uh, almost forgot this. We had large blocks. These things were the size of a sheet pan. And I wanted to get them to smaller pieces. And I wanted to clean them out a little bit. And some of them had some honey on the bottom of them. What I did with those is they had a large restaurant pot filled with water. And I put them in there and I melted them. And then I set them outside and I let them cool off. And what happens with that, if you've never seen it, is all the debris is on the bottom of the wax cake and the clean wax is on the top mostly some debris even falls to the bottom of the pan under the water and when it cools off you take the cake out and you flip it over and then you use a scraper for me I used a bench scraper and also at one point used a plastic ruler uh, one of those hard plastic rulers and you just scrape the bottom off for me, the bench scraper worked great. As I dragged it across, it created these little ribbons of dark, dirty comb with debris in it. And you just keep scraping to the point where you get to clean, and then you've cleaned that off. And I have a piece of that here. It's circular. It's about the size of a pot. And honestly, I think this stuff, if I melted it, I don't even know if I'd need to filter it through. That's how clean it is. And you can go on YouTube and see videos of this. It's uh, pretty straightforward. Now that, I have to warn you, and, it, and it's disconcerting, you have to scrape a lot of wax off sometimes in order to get down to the clean. And I ended up with this big ball of wax, and I think what I'm going to do is take that and put it in the double boiler, melt it down, and see what I get. To me, it's no dirtier than the wax from melting old, really crusty frames. Now you would think melting old crusty frames would give you brown gross wax. Actually it's not that bad. And what I've heard is you can take this wax that's kind of darker. It's almost like an olive color. You could put it out in the sun and the sun will lighten this. It'll bleach it out to become nice and light yellow. If you don't like the look of it. Now again, I don't know what's in this stuff because it's from comb that who knows when. 
Reagan was president. <laughs> so I don't know that I'd be putting it, certainly not in cosmetics, where I'd be putting in lip balm and putting it on my face. And if you're burning candles, the stuff is going to come out in the air. So use that for utility wax that you use in the garage or something that you're going to rub on the end of a, um, a drawer so it slides nicely. I don't know. Think of ideas. I'm just trying to riff here. So, Welting Max. It was a lot of fun, honestly. Uh, we had a good time doing it together. While we were doing it, we made dinner and we took the seeds out of the squash and the seeds from the green peppers and put them on a tray and dried them out alongside some of the wax that we were working with. So we're like homesteaders. Um, beautiful, beautiful wax. Please do not throw your wax away. Do this. You will appreciate it over time. Again, look on YouTube. There's a bunch of videos out there for how to do this. And I think at one point we had an episode with Charlie Ilsley who described how he does his wax. He puts it all in a uh, mesh bag, if I remember correctly, and he puts it in boiling water. And what ends up happening is the wax comes out, but the mesh bag, whether it was made of a t-shirt or whatever, I don't remember what episode. I could probably go back and look it up. That... Um, that ends up keeping the debris inside. It's almost like a bouquet garni, if you know cooking. And that's really cool. So that's another way you can go about it. Good thing to do right now. And actually, what's funny, last, last bit on this, I noticed Jeff Bird, past president of the New Jersey Beekeepers Association, posted something about uh, melting wax. So, like mine, I guess. Alright. That's the end of that. Hope you picked up some useful tips there. Topic number four, last one for the episode, given how long we're going. We went and visited Seattle at one point. We went around to see different things, and we stopped in this place called the Salish Lodge and Spa. And while we were there, we noticed they had honeybees and part of their marketing had to do with the honeybees that they had on the property. I think I talked about it on the show. Um, the, the point of bringing this up is that the other day in our COVID, we're staying at home, we decided to make sugar cookies and we went and found the honeybee cutter cookie cutter that we purchased from that place. We remembered we had it. Sharon went through the stock. What we didn't remember is attached to it was a card and on it is a honey and almond cookie recipe. So this is it. One cup of butter, one cup of sugar, one egg, four teaspoons honey. They say Salish honey. One teaspoon almond extract, three cups of flour, all purpose, one and a half teaspoons baking soda, quarter teaspoon of kosher salt, and a half teaspoon of ground cinnamon. And then you can use honey to glaze the cookie. So the way they talk about it, you use a stand mixer, but I'm guessing you could probably use a hand mixer. You cream the sugar and the honey together, you mix in the egg. I'm sorry, nope, 
Let me make sure I get that right. You cream the butter and the sugar together. Have you ever done that? You put butter and sugar in. The sugar cuts the butter apart and it aerates it a little bit and it makes it light yellow in color. Almost like lemony yellow. That's when you know you've creamed the butter properly. Then you mix in the honey, the egg, the almond extract. Over on a side bowl, sift the dry ingredients. Once you have them sifted, combine them in the mixer. You want to put it together but not over mix it or you'll get tough cookies. Just mix it until it's fully incorporated. And then what I like to do is scoop that out, roll it into a roll, put it in plastic wrap, and put it in the fridge. When you do that, it makes it really, really cold, and then later when you come to cut it, it makes it better. And when you cook it, it tends to hold its shape. That's the reason why you refrigerate it for a period of time. Now, I tend to try to roll it in a log. You gather it together in a ball, and then you roll it out into a log where the shape of the circle is as big as the cookie cutter. Stay with me here on this. Freeze it. And you ever buy the, take this tip from the store, you buy the cookies in a roll and you just cut them. Tink, 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 and you could use them round. Well, in this case, when you cut the round, you just take the cookie cutter and push it down and it's got the right shape and you don't have to roll it out. You can literally just cut slices off of the thing. Or you could take it out, roll it out to the right dimension and use your cookie cutter and press it in and gather all the scraps. And do. It's your choice. You could do it either way. I have the Kevin way, which is to cut the slices, do the thing, and then I do the ball and roll it out. So cut the dough with the big cookie cutter. They like to cover it with sliced almonds and then glaze it with honey before they bake it. Set the oven to 325, bake it for about 8 minutes. They're talking about a convection oven. In, in England they say, with fan. I think you bake it a little bit longer. I, obviously you could just look through the window and tell whether they're cooked. Don't cook them until they're done done. Cook them until they're almost done and take them out and then they'll finish. Otherwise you get the dry, crispy not so good a lot of cookies and then they say you could brush them again with honey after you're done so I guess I didn't really follow their recipe but I know how to make a cookie that's how you make it if you want to follow their recipe go to my show notes I'll have a link to it you could buy the cookie cutter and when you buy it they ship the little card which I happen to have in my hand and it has that recipe on it so Salish Honey and Almond Cookie from the Salish Lodge and Spa out near Seattle, Washington. I think I'm going to wrap it up here. Next couple weeks should be fun trying to figure out what to do. You know, the thing I, I talked about in the opening was that I intended to go out and do this Bailey Shook and be done, but I had to do the intervention with the Gateway Hive not, not the gateway, the 8-frame hive. And I found the one hive doesn't have what looks like an operational queen. I'm really hoping to find a warm day and go back in and see what is going on in there. And take whatever manipulation to make that other hive come together. I wax and I wane as to whether what I'm going to do with it. But the key to this is it's spring. This is the time. 
And that's what this episode was mostly about. I waxed on for quite a while there about different notions, but I had to get that stuff out of my head. It's been something that's been spinning circles in there, and now I feel whole because I got it out and shared it with you. So it should be an interesting couple weeks. See what's going on every week in April. Now it's going to be cool here for a stretch, which is frustrating because the trees and the plants and whatever, they don't care. They're going to do their thing for the spring and i don't know maybe cooler weather tends to hold the plants a little better but we've had freeze eh, stop it kevin like our beloved bees when beekeepers go together we can accomplish great things thanks for listening everybody and take care be well be safe